Hi, my name's Andy Cope and welcome to the most uplifting podcast in the world. As a positive psychology researcher, I'm excited, delighted and honoured to be sitting in the podcast hot seat. The aim is to bring you guests who have something interesting or insightful or inspirational. They might have a story to tell, something clever, something simple, anything goes. We hope to inspire, educate, entertain and on a good day, maybe even make you chuckle. And why should you listen? Well, we figure life is relentless. It's full on. And most people are a million miles away from feeling as great as they could. So think of this podcast as a reminder or maybe a leg up to being a better version of you. Sometimes against the odds. So relax, open your ears, open your mind and allow me to bring you this week's amazing episode of the best podcast in the world. On with the show. Okay, on the other end of Skype today, I've got a good mate of mine, Peter Anderton. Um, now, I'm lucky enough not just to know Pete kind of, you know, socially, but he also delivers the art of being brilliant for us. He's our leadership guru. Uh, we go back donkey's years, and I'm d- I've been trying to get him on the podcast for a long time. Now, Pete's really interesting because me and him are kind of diametrically opposed on some things. <laughs> so, for example, religion and swearing. Uh, we, we, we disagree on both of those. Um, so Pete has never issued a swear word in his entire life. So hats off to the man. And I'm a bit more effing and blinding. But he's a lo- he, probably, I don't know, the nicest man that I've ever met in my entire life. Um, I'm challenging him to not say top banana on this podcast. All right, because that's his catchphrase. So Peter, how are you, mate? Uh, you, what were you going to say there? You were going to say TB, weren't you? Top. I'm fine fit and dandy. Oh, that's completely unnerved you fine fit and dandy know, that's, that's the second one down from top banana mate i'm delighted delighted so excited to have you on here so in in true kind of traditional podcast style uh, we go back donkey's years mate don't we back to uh, a previous existence you have to uh, used to have in the corporate world so where did you start out uh what in terms of me going all the way back well back to you i'm thinking 3m i wasn't going to mention them but tell me about your 3m days because that was interesting i I think with you you've got an interesting backstory you've got a really really colorful present and i think the future is even brighter so i think i'd like to explore all of those so let's go back to go back 10 years mate okay so at 3m so i mean uh so I used to i had a range of different roles in 3m i actually joined as a production manager i used to make asthma inhalers and then uh, I crossed over to the dark side and joined HR. It's a very long, drawn-out story as to how that happened. It's probably not worth going into it. Um, but they were looking to get a bit more of a pragmatic approach, somebody who knew what the shoe was like on the, uh, on the other foot. And, and it, it was fabulous. I loved it and never, never looked back. And my role really grew. I started off as HR manager for a particular area and also HRD, so a lot of the training and the organisational development side. And it just grew. So by the time I left 3M, I was doing organisational development for all of the UK. So that was working with with the board, that was looking, working with leadership development, that was working with change, and all sorts of exciting stuff in between. So I, I had a great time there, actually, and learned a lot. You learned a lot, and you were really bloody good at what you did as well. So, so why would you, any sane person, give up a job that they really, really love? to do something completely different and take a ridiculous risk and, and become self-employed. Why would any sane person do that, Peter? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm not any sane person. <laughs> um, I guess there's a couple of things that come to mind. I can remember when I first came across Art of Brilliance. And, uh, and uh, do you remember all those years ago, Derbyshire Dales? Uh, and I was mad busy. There was so much going on. And I remember I arranged to come and see you run a session 
and it was a full day session and I arranged just to come for the morning because there's so much going on. I can remember that I'm driving there in the morning thinking, why have I arranged this? I haven't got time for this. There's too much going on. What, what was I doing? And I can remember within an hour, in fact, probably within about half an hour, I was completely hooked. Ended up cancelling everything I got for the afternoon session because I couldn't go home. I was like, I've got to see how this ends. Um, and I just absolutely loved it. And I, it, it, it really got under my skin in terms of what that was about. And that coupled with, I guess, I just, I don't know. Um, in fact, I'll tell you one of the things that happened, because, again, it's, it's like anything. There's lots of things that are going on. I'd always talked about uh, setting up on my own, and my, and my wife, Sarah, said to me one day, I don't think you're ever going to do this, Peter. And that was like, that's it. Don't you tell me I'm never going to do that. <laughs> um, and within six months, I'd left. <laughs> so that was one of the factors. But lots, it's like anything, lots of things come together. But I've never looked back. It's been brilliant. Okay, well, and, and I think the I think it, because it chimes with what you believe anyway and it also you knew all this other stuff around leadership as well and and to be fair of all the trainers on the team you are the one who is less likely to be delivering our core flagship art of being brilliant although you do that really well your real thing is leadership so can we unpick what you currently do now not just for us but for yourself you know you're uh, I, I don't want to plug the kind of three-day thing too much but there, you do this fantastic three-day program tell us a bit about 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 that and um, so well, it's re it's really just spending. It's a bit of a control alt delete for leaders. You know, we we get to the point there where our computer's not quite working properly. We can do a bit of a reboot and, and iron out some of the glitches. Uh, and we're in such a manic world, going at such a pace, uh, and and things are getting faster and faster and faster. And we can find ourselves if we're not careful. Whilst life's going faster around us, we're getting more and more bogged down and stuff. And sometimes we just need to clear the screen. <laughs> And, and that's really what these three days are about. And it's quite a lot of the sessions we run, obviously, are quite, can be, we're happy with quite large, large groups. This is quite different. So this is, we restrict this to a, a smaller number of people because it's very discussion based. So we're looking at around 10 people maximum. And we, uh, the session we run, uh, we'll, we'll tend to run it somewhere you can really switch off. So the, the, the venue I usually use is, is Champney Spa in, in Leicestershire. So you've got to watch out for people walking around in their dressing gowns as well. But other than that, it's very relaxing. And, and it's just taking time just to sit and think about what it's all about, strip leadership right back down to the basics and get some core principles in place and some simple skills that go with that to get you to reevaluate what you're doing and how you communicate with other people. And, uh, and probably, there's lots of feedback I've had from it, but probably one of my favorite, favorite quotes was somebody called it, Quietly life-changing. Quietly life-changing. I love it, mate. Yeah, yeah. So it's like our intensive leadership uh, development program. And, and yeah, the feedback is just off the scale, mate. So I think I think that chimes in with kind of the whole art of being real philosophy, that, that we're living life fast, but are we living it well? And I think you, you're absolutely right, is that we can get stuck behind emails and stuck be we're just doing the same but harder, the same but faster. In fact, that takes me back to when I uh, when I first started to be uh, when I was a lecturer back in the day teaching at Loughborough College and Loughborough Uni. I looked around at all the other lecturers, and they all and I wanted to be the best, Pete. I wanted to look at them and take what they were doing and do it better. And I did, and I did. I got really good at it. I got really good at doing the wrong thing, really well. I got really really efficient at at, at being rubbish, 
and and then I looked at my life and life also I wasn't sad or depressed but I was living life really fast because everybody else was living it fast but I wasn't living it well and I think daring to step off the treadmill it's a big the biggest deal with you getting people on your leadership program is getting them to take three days out <laughs> to take to take a step out uh, off the hamster wheel and then you do two days don't you and then you give them a break and then they're back a couple of couple of weeks yeah, later uh, why do you, you give them a, why is there a break because you can only really cope with two days of me at a time. You know, that's, that's kind of a limit, isn't it? No, but the, the, the whole idea is, so we work on stuff in the two days, and then they have to do something with it. Because we've all been on programs, it's like, yeah, that was interesting, put the stuff back on the shelves. And the whole point of the third day is working with what they've done over that period of time. And I'll tell you what, some of the, the stories and the examples that we get, so it's usually only three or four weeks gap between the two. Uh, but you know, at the end of the day, there's two categories of people. There will be the people that, that pick out the folder three days before the follow-up day and think, oh, yeah, I'm supposed to be doing something with this. And there's the people that realize that this is a fabulous opportunity. They get stuck in straight away. And some of the examples they come back with about how their team has changed, how their difficult employees has changed, how their relationship with their boss has changed, how they're getting teams coming forward with them, different answers and ideas and results. And, and they can see shifts happening in only a few weeks if you just take the basic principles and put it into practice and it really isn't rocket science no well it's in like well that's why i love it mate it's in line with what we do it's like we i just i always call it personal remembering so i think everybody already knows uh how to improve their lives and how to be happier and how to be a better leader we already know it but it's the doing and the doing you know giving people that space to actually reflect on their own practice go away have a go come back tell us about it and it is it's the basics but it's it's the basics delivered really well i can deliver the basics mate i can't deliver them as well as you deliver them so so um you can't say top banana but i can mate top (laughs) banana So, without it's giving the, it's absolutely killing me. I know, I know. Without giving the game away, tell me about either tell me about your biscuit factory or tell me about your two rules. Um, well, they're kind of linked, really, because I think probably the biscuit factory is where the two rules finally started to drop into place. Although I would say too late for me to get it, if that makes sense. I almost got them. Uh, as the Biscuit Factory experience came to an end. Come on, nobody else knows about the Biscuit Factory, so <laughs> enlighten us, enlighten us. So, um, well, in a previous incarnation, I was I was, um, I was the mini cheddar man. I used to be the man who made mini cheddars. And, uh, <laughs> That's a hell of a claim to fame, dude, isn't it? And that, that was my first ever experience of production. So before that, I worked for ICR, which sadly I know more anymore, and I worked... Um, as an internal consultant, but I wanted to have in manufacturing, but I wanted to have my own patch to work on. So I ended up moving down to the area, working for United Biscuits. And they kind of brought me in as the young hotshot who would change the way things were done. And I did a fabulous job with the mini cheddars line. And then they put me in charge of chocolate hobnobs, which was the problem child of the entire factory. It's a step up there, mate, from mini cheddars to chocolate oh, hobnobs, serious, isn't it? Serious, serious stuff. I know. Well, again, much smaller team because it's so highly automated. So you know, with hobnobs, I had a, a sorry with mini cheddars. You had a team of about sixty odd people. With hobnobs, it was down to about eight, um, and, and a lot of machinery that went with it. And the, the two managers before me pretty much went off with nervous breakdowns. But I was young enough and arrogant enough to think that I would be fine. You know, I can handle this. I can do this. And I nearly cracked up, Andy. It was it was unbelievable. I I'm a really positive, upbeat, can do. There's always a way person. And there I was, you know, almost looking over the edge, thinking, "How did I get here?" Uh, it was, uh, it was probably, it was one of the darkest times in my life. And there was a time when Sarah had got away. I don't know if she's getting into too much detail, but she'd gone away, 
Uh, and I'd done a late shift and gone into the library to catch up on some work afterwards. And she tried phoning me at like midnight. And I, I didn't expect her to phone me at midnight. I wasn't at home. I was working. And she was so worried about me. She actually sent a friend out to look for me because she thought I'd probably be on a park bench gibbering somewhere, having completely lost it. So what's, what, what, what broke you, mate? What, what, what was... Tell me, because there's some learning that's come out of this. I know you're going to get in and tell us the learning, because sometimes it's the really tough times. Well, often it's the really tough times where you find out who you really are. Yeah, and actually, uh, one of the hardest things I've ever done in my career was actually turning around to them and saying, I know I'm supposed to be doing hot shot, but I don't think I can do this. Can you give me another job? Uh, and they put me in charge of two other lines, and, and that was fine. I was doing, um, you never had a ginger nut until you've had one fresh from the oven, and it's still gooey in the middle. That was a that was a pinnacle of my career. That was, but but in terms of learning, you know, first of all, was realizing that it's okay to say I don't have the answers. And interesting enough, after I left, they slowed the line down significantly, and they replaced it with two people. So I kind of felt a bit justified because I'd done all the maths. I'm an engineer uh, in background. You know what they were looking at was actually mathematically impossible. But they weren't going to believe me while I was in the middle of it. But So, yeah, a, a big learning point for me was realising we don't have all of the answers. We can't solve everything ourselves. And I think this, this kind of starts to, to bring us to rule number one of leadership because I was absolutely everywhere. I mean, I was working all sorts of hours. And wherever there was a problem, I was there. I was fixing this problem there. I was fixing that problem over there. You know, I was, I was dealing with the conveyor belts, you know, overhead conveyor belts where things were jamming. I was just doing absolutely everything from sort of managing the whole process to fixing the little tweaks. And, and of course, that's where I was going wrong because I had a team of people and they were all doing stuff. But what the more I realized that the most powerful thing I could do was really open up their potential and really get them fully engaged and, and really sorting everything out the more powerful the team would actually become. Whereas all the time I was just fixing, we're focusing on what I can fix, what I can fix, what I can fix. And I was in there in the detail and getting in the way and effectively completely disempowering them. I thought I was helping them. That's the irony. I wasn't the control freak telling them what they needed to do all the time, but I just kept getting in the way. It was all, in my head, it was all about me. I had all the answers. I, you know, it was about my blood, my sweat, my tears, and my ego. Because of course, I was the young hotshot. Everything relied on me, and I had to get this right. And if I didn't get this right, then I let the whole side down. And that's where I was going wrong. Mate, we've—I mean, we've everybody listening to this is nodding, I'm sure, and going blimey. That we've all been there, and some of us are still there. Yeah. So I think, and you articulate it rather beautifully in terms of talking about that's you that's you with your pants on the outside being a superhero where really what you should be with hindsight you should have been creating superheroes yeah yeah and I, I love that i love that you know the way that you put that so if you so so you thought it was all about you mm. and that's rule number one isn't it so rule number one when you get to the fundamental principles of leadership is it's not about you you know we've got to recognize that actually a leader only delivers results to other people so if it's all about them then they are. Then they'll, they'll never fulfil what they could actually fulfil. If we recognise that it's all about the other people, it's about their ideas, it's about their energy, it's about their potential, and we shift our focus completely from being on ourselves and on to them, then then everything starts to shift. But until we get rule number one, we're stuck. And and there's so many managers out there making themselves and people around them miserable. I was one of them because they don't get rule number one. 
Okay, literally making yourself ill through it is amazing. All right, so tell me, so there must be another rule, mate, if that's rule number one, because leadership can't just be rule number one. No, Enlighten no, me. And it, well, it, it's, it's getting to the point as well that I was also really frustrated with those around me. They weren't really doing what I wanted them to be doing. Um, there were times when they were disengaged. You know, there were times when they were queuing to, to, to get out the... Uh, the, to get to the clock machine and get out at the end of the day and do you know what it was understandable that the, the, the whole thing was was just it was a disaster my worst ever shift saw about 10 tons of biscuits on the floor uh, that's a lot of biscuits okay i mean I, I can eat a lot of biscuits but i can't eat that many <laughs> it was, they, honestly it was just carnage absolute carnage and it was a really stressful place to be. But again, the danger is, and we've all made this mistake, we want everybody else to change. There's, um, I, I will throw this in here, actually. It's not, it's not my stuff. There's a guy called John Maxwell. He's got some really um, powerful insights on leadership. He's been around for, for a long time. And he talks about the five levels of leadership. Uh, and I know you'll be familiar with them, but I'll, I'll just run through them anyway. Level one leadership is where people work for you because you're the boss. That's where you know you've got level one leadership when they're queuing at the clock machine to get out as quickly as possible afterwards. You know, if the shift finishes at two o'clock, they're already at three minutes to two, just, just queuing to slide the card through uh, as soon as they possibly can. That's where people work for you because you're the boss. There's no other reason. They just have to. Yeah, and when you work, if somebody works for you because they have to, they'll give you the minimum and perhaps a little bit less if they can get away with it because you don't inspire them. Level two leadership then is, is, is where they work for you because they like you. Doesn't mean you have to be everybody's bestest buddy, but we've all worked for a manager we like and a manager we don't like, and we know there's a difference. You give a bit more. Level three leadership is where they, um, they work for you because you've made a difference. They can see things are better because of the things that you've been able to achieve. I'm gonna speed up because I can see your eyes glazing over. No, 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 it's good, mate, it's good. I'm learning, I'm writing it down. Oh, okay. Um, uh, now, level four leadership is where they follow you because of, of because you've helped them grow. And again, if we just look back over our careers, there'll be somebody that saw something in us that we might not even have seen in ourselves, and they brought it out of us. You know, some, sometimes just through encouragement, sometimes through putting us in a really difficult situation that we don't think we can cope with, but they know we can, and we grow. And, and you know what? The person you can think of when that face comes to mind, you'd do anything for. So all the time we're getting to a you know, deeper, deeper level of commitment here as we move from level one leadership, which is the minimum, to level four leadership. Now, level five leadership is where they follow you because of who you are and what you represent. You know, it's all about what you stand for. It's all about the person that you actually are. And if you get to the point that they follow you for that reason, then they'll work for you for blood, sweat, and tears. They'll give you everything. And again, this isn't manipulative. This is a choice. You know, when I work for people like that, I've loved it. And I've given them my absolute all. You, know, you don't hold anything back at that point. And because of the world in which we live, you know, everybody's team's getting smaller and smaller, and the workload's getting you know, bigger and bigger, and things are going faster and faster and faster. We can't operate today in a world where people give their minimum. We have to find a way to access their all. And if we can't do that, then things really start to grind to a halt. So we've got to recognize that that really starts with us. And it starts with us being the best we can be, because the closer we can get to level five, we're not just opening up the potential of individuals using rule number one, but we're really starting to access uh, how great the team can become by using rule number two. Because what we realize here is that fundamentally, 
you know, we might want other people to change. When I was on the biscuit line, I wanted everybody else to change. You know, I had all the answers because, of course, I thought then it was all about me. I just needed other people to change and be the same and do the same sort of thing. Uh, and finally, and too late, sadly, the penny dropped that actually the person who needed to change was me. And if I changed, then I could expect things to change around me. You know, if you've got somebody, this applies in anything. You know, if you've got somebody you're not getting on with, you know, this could be outside of work. Well, we'll stop waiting for them to stop being a jerk and, and start cleaning up your own act. We <laughs> think, well, okay, how can I change my behaviour? And I, I'll tell you what, please, don't, I don't want to give the impression I get this right all the time. I'm tripping up on this regularly, okay? I get the principles, and sometimes I blunder my way through it. And, and, and you know, we all have to be reminded, don't we? Because that's rule number one. It's not about us. We can't always see it, can we? Sometimes somebody else can. So, so I'm, I'm by no means perfect at this by any stretch. I could just see it, and it makes so much sense to me. Um, but the whole point, then, of rule number two is recognizing that, you know, we need to sort ourselves out and not wait for everybody else to sort themselves out. Um, Nelson Mandela put it like this. I thought it was fabulous. He said, I, I could not change others until I changed myself. You know, that was the principle he talks about. So, so, so rule, rule number two says, let's stop waiting for everybody else to get their act together and start cleaning up our own act. You know, rule number two says, you know, what's rule number one says, it's not about you. Rule number two says, it's only about you. <laughs> And, and sometimes I get quizzical looks at that point, saying, hang on a minute, what have you just said? I'm thinking there's a complete contradiction, but they're two very different statements, two very different rules. And as long as I realise, number one, it's not about me, I've got to actually access what's going on in the team around me and fulfil that potential, uh, and it not be about my ideas and my ego and my way of doing things. But then if I get to rule number two and realise that it's no good waiting for them to get where they need to be, I need to be the best that I can be first, and if I want them to change what they're doing, I need to look at how I change what I'm doing. Because nobody comes with remote controls. There is no such thing. And we can't say to people, it's back time you move down to level three now, isn't it? Let's have a bit more commitment. Thank you very much. Press the button, on we go. It doesn't work. You know, the only way we can influence them actually moving down a level and giving us more is our behavior. That's why rule number two says it's only about you. Mate, I've just uh, that was just what was that a seven minute monologue that was mate I just sat there I wasn't going to I wasn't going to interrupt because I'm just sat there grinning and grinning and grinning because I've had lots of managers in my time but only one that I can think of that was a level five and you are so right mate I would have followed her to the ends of the earth you know and, and she's a bit older than me but if she goes before me I'll be at her funeral mate that's the, that's the power of it and did I work hard? My gosh, I worked hard. I think technically we call it discretionary effort, don't we? That effort that you that you give willingly because of you, you trust that person implicitly and you want you want to please them. So yeah, it's very powerful stuff. It's obviously not always d easy to do um, because uh, your own thinking is getting in the way. I think all that all that stuff because we could just say you could just run the shortest leadership course in the world, couldn't you? You could say uh, it's not about you and it's all about you. Right, go off, go off, do that. And people would be scratching their heads going, how? You know, and it's that, it's that, the, the reason I love the kind of three-day thing, immersive, that you do is, is those two simple principles. You unpick them and unpack them and get people to work it out for themselves and then unleash them on, on the workplace. So it's beautiful, mate. Absolutely brilliant. I love that. I'm feeling inspired by that. Um, any, can we just briefly, I might come back to leadership in a minute, but I know this probably still is leadership. You're just back from that uh, wonderful holiday hotspot of Malawi. 
<laughs> Mate, nobody really goes to Malawi. I've looked at it in the international league tables of happiness and it's in the bottom 10. Why would you choose to go for two weeks in Malawi? Um, so I went now. It was voluntary work, actually, uh, with the church. And we were visiting... Uh, there were two things we were doing. One was visiting a whole load of, of, of different churches and spending some time with them. Uh, and the second one then is a, is the second part of, of the visit. We ran like a youth Bible school um, with, uh, so we had about uh, 60 young people from the ages of about 14 to 34. Uh, and we spent a few days with them as well. And the whole, you know, the whole objective is kind of twofold. So partly it's pastoral in the sense that, you know, that they're dealing with circumstances that here in the West, we just haven't got a clue. You know, we are, we are living such a charmed existence. Uh, and we can, you know, when you talk about, you know, first world problems, the things we find ourselves complaining about over here are just shocking, you know, pro proper shocking. And the stuff that's being dealt with on a day-to-day -day basis over there, we just couldn't even get our heads around. So, so partly it's supporting them because they've been challenged with a famine in the past. Uh, and it's seeing what we can do to help and support them. But a, a big objective for what we're doing is um, we're going out there to, to try and get help them to be more independent um, spiritually. And you know, a big thing about where I come from, it's not about just believing what the bloke next door tells you the Bible says. It's about working it out for yourself. And we're really trying to get them to unpick and, and you know, as they read their Bibles to think about it and what that actually means rather than just take, you know, my word for it, work through it themselves. And, and as part of the challenge is I think the educational system, and of course, there's, only some of them manage to get to school. You know, the educational system tends to be very much, they learn by rote. You know, it's yes, no answers all of the time. When it comes to actually getting them to think, that's, that's another level. And wow. that's something that they're used to. And I think that's, that's been a challenge and you know sadly it's the floor of the education system but again as i said financially there are just challenges getting kids to school in the first place okay so if we just part the religion a second and tell me about your experiences out there in terms of gauging levels of happiness of their communities would you are they as happy less happy happier well this this is the strange thing really because i mean i obviously don't know how the happiness tables uh, you know, you, you sometimes look at the data and you think, I, I can't quite stack that up. Because I, went, I was in the Cameroon a few years ago, and that's really quite low down the tables as well. And yet I'm dealing with people that have next to nothing. But, but you know, the smiles that I saw and just, you know, the, the, the little boy that the only thing he's got to play with is an old bicycle wheel. That's like his total toy kit, and that's like pretty advanced. And and he was just happy. <laughs> you know, well, does that not? If we get a bit philosophical about this, then does that not lead us to what the root of happiness really might be? And it isn't materialism. We, we are. I'm not saying it's God either, by the way. But I'm suggesting maybe community, relationships, simplicity. I think we need to. I think simplicity is a big part of it. Obviously, I'm going to say God will be a factor, and that's that's part of the arm wrestling match we can, we can have one day. Um, but it is simplicity. I mean, like, you know, the, the football they had was made of plastic bags tied together with pieces of string. You know, I, I was the goalkeeper and uh, they were all lining up to, um, you know, fire in a goal against me. It's just simple stuff. I mean, like I said, I saw some real conditions that are out there 
but it's recognizing what matters and what doesn't. Having said that, I mean, I don't know what the latest data is. I mean, it has also been shown that a certain amount of money beyond a certain base level, you know, is is makes a difference to your happiness. The problem we've got over here is that most of us are pursuing that way, way beyond that figure. So one of the things, one of the churches, they, 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 they were, they, one of the things they asked for was some help to get some cement so they could build um, a concrete pool by the river so they could do baptisms without worrying about crocodile attacks. Jesus, my God. Right. So, you know, a different world, you know, and then they're like, please, will you help us do this? And we're like, why would we not? You know, we're not worrying about things like that on a, on a, on a regular basis. It's simple stuff. So, you know, the, in terms of, you know, mortality, they are much, much closer to it than we are. And I think this, that is an interesting fact, and you need to stop me if I'm getting all philosophical on you here, but what's really intriguing, you go around Malawi and, and you see signs of faith everywhere. Um, the names of shops, you know, probably two out of three shops have got some sort of religious name or quote in it. I mean, some of them are quite funny, you know, in terms of what you see. Like, you know, there's the, there was one that we, I'm like, did I really just see that one was the Up, Up Jesus shop? Um, and you know the, the the Shekinah grocery rather than the Shekinah glory, or you know there's a whole range of, and it's everywhere. All the all the you know. So whilst you still get cheesy cheesy Pete's um, uh, mechanical parts, you know you'll get all these other ones as well, and, and everywhere. And I think it's because they're closer to mortality. Okay, um, but but is that not is that without me prodding you too hard with a stick here? Is that not because? There, when you've got nothing and life is really relentless and full on and you are literally probably got enough food for today and tomorrow that yes. the afterlife mate and the and the the belief in having this higher faith and the promise that life will be okay once it's over the eternal afterlife is that not something that religion drives that this like but basically we are charmed in the west that we don't have to live that existence that our life now is pretty good but if your life now isn't pretty good then isn't the Bible more comforting than anything? Uh, and, and again, we've had various debates here. I, I don't think there's any difference with the West, because I think in the West it's just things like lottery tickets or pay rises or whatever it is. You know, my life will be all right when. You know, the whole issue of destination addiction, where it's all about waiting for some unknown point in the future when everything will magically fall into place without any effort on our part. <laughs> Um, I don't. I don't think it matters where you are or, or how close you are to mortality. But I think in the West we can kid ourselves a lot more, yeah, and uh, and, and, and blind ourselves. Whereas you find yourself in that scenario, and it's just it's very you know I I, I don't this this is probably the wrong term to use, isn't it? But it's very black or white, you know. Whereas yeah. we fudge things over here, so we can't really see the picture clearly, and we can kid ourselves so easily. And I think the issue is, and this is the difference here, I think. It comes down to whether you're talking about fake religion or true religion, because the fundamental thing I think about true religion is that it's not about waiting for some unknown point in the future. True religion comes down to um, the fact that actually I need to become who I could be, and I need to be doing that now. And yes, there's something in the future that's associated with that. Absolutely. I'm not going to pretend that that isn't the case. But I'm not sitting here with my arms crossed waiting, you know, right, when's this going to happen? You know, there's too much to do. I've got to work on, this is rule number two, I've got to work on being the best I could be now. In fact, I don't know if I'm going to push you too far on this, and um, 
But I go as far as saying, now I talk, yes, I talk about the two rules of leadership, but when I find myself in a church environment talking to others, I can also call them the two rules of discipleship. Yeah. Because actually, in terms of, you know, how we work, and again, you could, you could call them the two rules of community. You know, I know you see that the benefit from religion in community, and I say it's far, far more than that. And it's not, it's not some sort of crutch that makes us feel better. Actually, this is all about me becoming the best I can be. And you know what? Sometimes times will be hard, and sometimes times will be easy. But it doesn't matter whether it's hard or easy. I still got this goal of becoming the best that I can be. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes beautiful sense, mate. You've articulated it wonderfully. I think, I think once you said what you said a couple of minutes ago, this in the West that we're chasing materialism and income way beyond the levels where it'll have any impact on our happiness at all now if you if you earn 20 grand and i and i double pay to 40 grand that will make a huge difference to your well-being and your happiness because you'll be able to turn the heating up and you'll be able to buy nicer stuff but if i if i put you up to 50 grand to 60 grand that isn't going to make a whole difference to your happiness levels and if i put you up from 140 grand to 150 grand you won't even notice it won't make any difference to your happiness at all so of course what what I think in uh, Malawi levels where people are on subsistence living, then helping them to make more money will actually probably improve the quality of their lives massively, absolutely hugely. But um, I think in the West, we're way beyond. Most families will be on that now. And, and we know we're, we're driven everywhere I go, mate, and you, you're the same. Travel up and down the country past these big yellow self-storage places. Oh, and no, and every time, every, they're everywhere. There's three in Derby now. And every time I drive past one of those, what I think is that we've accumulated so much stuff that's failed to make us happy that we're now renting somewhere to put that stuff so that we can create some space at home for more stuff that's ultimately going to fail to make us happy and i just think it's there's a there's a i can't remember who wrote it there's a there's a book called um i think it's called he talks about enoughness which i know probably no such word but i think in the you, you once again you're the same as me when you when you stay over in a hotel the all you can eat breakfast is the bane <laughs> of my life mate because you've paid you've paid for it up front haven't you and you're thinking and it's all laid out before you all laid out before you right and you're thinking well i'm not sure but I'm, where's my next meal's coming from so what we do because of our prehistoric brains is we gorge get our money's worth and we eat and eat and eat and i think in the modern world when we are literally it's not just about full english breakfast it's about enoughness is we're 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 drowning in glut and i think a part of what you're alluding to is knowing when you've had when you've got enough and being able to say no to Um, like you know what i'm satisfied with what i've got and that that is i think gratitude is a very big kind of religious thing there and and it it ties in it doesn't i mean i i know we've got different views on this i don't think it's i don't think it's to do with our prehistoric brains i think it's just down to old-fashioned greed really (laughs) And, and I think constantly we find ourselves with this desire to want more. And our hearts, you know, we can kid ourselves, can't we? Yeah. All the time we can kid ourselves. And sometimes uh, it takes uh, an experience or a conversation with somebody else to bring us up short and make us realise, hang on a minute, I've, you know, I've let my ladder up against the wrong wall here. What am I doing? Oh man, that's a beautiful way to end, Peter. That's fantastic. Okay, so I think we'll leave it to that. I mean, it's been it's kind of all over the place. I'd love to come back and do another podcast, mate, six months down the line, where we unpick the religious thing in a bit more detail and we have a good old ding dong about it. Because I do think there's some there's something to be had there. It's genuinely, genuinely interesting. And if you read lots of happiness research, then there's a big link between having a religious faith and being happier, which I'd like to explore at some point. However, meantime, I think we've gone over our half hour. So, uh, mini cheddar's man, top banana, chocolate hobnob man. <laughs> 
<laughs> rules, the two rules of leadership, man. Pete, we'll finish with, I'm going to ask you what makes you happy in a second, but your three-dayer, I yes. know you've got one in the diary, so without yes. us overtly, well, we may as well overtly plug it because, you know, it is going to be immense. When, when's your next one running? Right, so dates for the diary, November the 13th to the 14th, and then December the 18th, that's later this year, uh, in the Chagnys uh, Spa in, in Leicestershire. Fabulous location, a real opportunity just to have a full reboot. Awesome, mate, awesome. And um, there, obviously, if you want to check out that and get Pete's dates for 2019, 2020, they'll be at uh, autobrilliance.co.uk. Last question, fella, always the last question, is what makes Peter Anderton happy? Well, this, I, I've been thinking about this. Um, I've like so many answers to the question, so I know we're running out of time. Can I give you two? Go for it. Okay. Simple one. Um, no, I'm lying. I'm going to give you three. I just can't help myself. <laughs> so simple one would be just getting out of my bike. I love it. Wow. Just going out cycling. Um, clears my head. I'm always a better person after I've done it, and, the, and, and I feel great. Um, second one would be just being – I love being surrounded by um, – uh, fabulous people, particularly if it involves a meal. Yeah, that's 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 lovely. <laughs> but I think, <laughs> um, but I think I think probably the one that I put at the top of this links back to something we said before. Comes back to rule number two. My whole life is about becoming the best that I can be, and when I feel I'm becoming who I'm meant to be, uh, uh, and who God intended me to be, that gives me more of a buzz than I could possibly imagine. So uh, that's me. Mate, I will doff my metaphorical cap to that. That's so many pearls of wisdom in that. Um, thanks ever so much for being with us today, fella, and we'll tune in in six months for uh, part two of this ding-dong, all right? All right, then. Take care, Cheers. Then. Take care, Peter. Thanks ever Cheers. so much. And that, dear listener, is that. I hope you found it as interesting and as useful and as stimulating as I did. Congratulations, by the way, on making such a great choice of listening material. Please subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. Thank you for listening. Until next time, I wish you well. You've been listening to the Art of Brilliance podcast. Listen to and subscribe to all our podcasts at www.artofbrilliance.co.uk slash podcasts.